The Energy Gang is brought to you by C-Power. C-Power has been helping organizations, organizations like yours, chart a path to energy's future since the first open energy markets in the U.S. were established at the turn of the 21st century. Boy, are we in some uncertain times right now. And C-Power can help. They'll help you think through how energy markets are evolving and energy technologies are changing and build that unique bridge to the future. Visit thecpowerway.com slash future to learn about how C-Power can guide you across the bridge to energy's future. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the show. This week, a pandemic separates us, but a podcast brings us together. We have a special crossover episode between the Energy Gang and Climate 2020 to tackle the way coronavirus has whipsawed America's election. Up until just a few weeks ago, climate change was a top-tier issue in the Democratic primary. It was getting more airtime. It was getting serious policy consideration. It was a winning issue. All of that has been overtaken by a virus and a looming economic apocalypse. Primaries are delayed. Traditional campaigning has stopped. Biden is hiding out, preparing for the general election. Bernie Sanders is hanging on. And the way we think about all kinds of issues has totally flipped. What does it mean for the issue of climate change for the rest of the election season and beyond? The usual gang is assembled. Catherine Hamilton is in Arlington, Virginia at her home. How are you doing? What room are you in in your house? I'm where we always tape the podcast, which is in my bedroom, in my happy chair. And this is my happy place. It looks very lovely back there. I can actually see you for the first time because we're doing this on Zoom like everybody else in the country. <laughs> Jigger Shaw's in Bethesda, Maryland. He's got a beautiful background behind him. Normally you have these Zoom backgrounds, but it looks like he specially painted the wall with the moon and stars. It's my kid's uh, bedroom. <laughs> it's, it's nicely padded like a mental institution. <laughs> Children's bedrooms are often the best place to record from home, a little pro podcaster tip. Uh, <laughs> lots of soft things in there to muffle the noise. How are you both holding up? I'm all right. You know, it, like the, you, you take for granted how much you like sort of depend on quality teachers and schools, et cetera, to give your kid a great education and homeschooling is sort of, you know, a half-ass endeavor. Catherine, what about you? Yeah, we have two kids. And so my husband and I are kind of divvying up overseeing the workload, which is really significant. It's incredible how much our school and there's as a parochial school, but they have a lot of distance learning. And part of it's just keeping up with all of the different assignments that they have. Um, and ironically, one of my kids has to memorize a monologue from Lord of the Flies. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> Out in San Francisco is Jeff Nesbitt, uh, the Climate 2020 co-host and our new gang member this week, who has a picture of the Golden Gate Bridge behind him on his Zoom profile. How you doing, Jeff? I, I'm I'm doing great. And I have to say, Stephen, you, you look better on Zoom than Joe Biden does in captivity from his home. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can see on the screen a little cruise ship getting ready to dock there behind you. <laughs> Uh, Jeff is the executive director of Climate Nexus, which is a very well-known and influential climate communications group. He's an author, a former journalist, a senior public affairs official at the FDA. So um, I assume you won't be hawking chloroquine to our listeners, Jeff. No, I will not be. Uh, And he was also Dan (laughs) Quayle's director of comms. Uh, We really appreciate you being here. So as many of the listeners on this show know... um, 
I work on both of these shows. I'm the executive producer of uh, The Energy Gang and of Climate 2020. And the Climate 2020 is a show that uh, Jeff co-hosts alongside former veteran 60 Minutes producer David Gelber. And it's all about how climate change issues are influencing the election season, an election season that was just completely transformed. So we thought this was a good opportunity to bring us all together and talk about just how transformed and uncertain things are. So on these two shows, on Climate 2020, we're exploring and recapping how the new political reality is shaping the way we think about climate change. And of course, here on The Energy Gang, uh, for those of you listening on the Climate 2020 feed, we're thinking about the implications for the business of energy and clean tech, both through a policy and a markets lens. So we're bringing our shared expertise here to try to figure out uh, where we go from here in the election season. So I wanted to ask all of you before we get started, obviously our work, you know, we're lucky enough to work from home right now. Things are disrupted for us, but certainly not as much as uh, other folks who you know, work in retail or who work uh, government jobs you know, any number of jobs that have been disrupted that you can't do as from home as well. Uh, when you think of what you really love doing as part of your normal work, though, that you can't do right now, what is it? Uh, Jeff, what about you? Like, what do you really miss about the work that you normally do? This is going to sound hokey and cheesy, but I don't care. I miss actually sitting and talking to people in in, in a in a in a meeting space uh, because climate is such an abstract issue it's so difficult to deal with and we spend a lot of our time at climate nexus in our new york office it's an open space very big open space with lots of places for people to gather and talk we can't do any of that we're all trapped on zoom every day all day long i miss that i miss being able to just like walk over sit beside somebody's desk or go to a meeting space and sit and, and talk through an issue it's really difficult to talk through an issue on Zoom. You're just trapped in Zoom. Catherine, what about you? My favorite place in the world is being home with my family. And so I always think of work as a distraction from that. But And I spend a lot of time on the Hill with Congress, which right now you can't get close to with literally a 10-foot pole. Um, and most of those folks are, are working remotely anyway. But the thing I miss the most about doing things outside of home are when I travel to places out in the world, whether it's international or just down the road or to another state. It's just meeting people and learning about what they're doing. And there are so many people out there working so hard on clean energy and climate solutions who are unsung, nobody knows about them, but that inspire me every single day. And I miss that the most. Hmm. Jigger, what about you? Yeah, I think like Jeff, I, I find that um, the face-to-face -face meetings are far more productive than the Zoom meetings. And I think, you know, it's taken me a lot of effort to, you know, really figure out a new etiquette for how to bring productivity to Zoom, right? Because oftentimes people are, you know, banging out emails or figuring out other things that they're doing while they're on Zoom. And so people aren't as focused, right? Whereas when you're there in person, you can, you know, demand focus from the person you're talking to. And so, you know, that part of the, you know, the experience seems like something I really haven't mastered. Okay, so let's turn to our first section, and it's all about the frozen election. What happens now? Overnight, the literal physical energy of the presidential primary was stopped by coronavirus. 
A little over two weeks ago, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders were waiting for results from the six states that voted on March 10th. Then they abruptly started canceling events. Climate had been a powerful part of the campaign up to that moment. Uh, now, I mean, they're still talking about it. It was mentioned in a recent debate. They had you know, a lot of words to say about it, but voters are just not thinking about it in the same way. And so what happens now? Biden's lead is insurmountable. Uh, how is he going to be framing this issue going forward? Will Sanders leave the race or stay and try to push Biden on this issue? And as Biden looks to the general election, how is he going to evolve his messaging? So let's just talk about the state of play for the election. Um, Jeff, why don't we start with you? I mean, how serious has coronavirus screwed everything up at this point? For the climate issue, it's screwed it up quite a lot, to be perfectly honest. And let's just take Joe Biden. He was just being forced to talk about climate and energy issues. He was you know, trying to figure out how to do it on on the Climate 2020 podcast. We, I've been pretty critical of, of Biden's ability to talk about the issue. He, It's not a top-tier issue for him, even though it is for voters. It's clearly the number two issue uh, in the primaries. Um, Biden was being forced to talk about it. Bernie Sanders was calling him out on it. And now he doesn't have to. I mean, to be perfectly honest, we could go months, and Joe Biden may never talk about climate change or clean energy or anything related to that issue unless pressed by a reporter in his little booth from his home. Um, so that that's the big change. I mean, you know, Biden is, doesn't have to talk about this issue much anymore, at least for a while. Well, I suppose he could just go without talking for a while about any issue and just let Trump sit out there and be at the front of the current crisis we're in and then kind of come in at a later stage. So I, I presume that we won't hear a whole lot from Biden for a little while. Well, actually, I, I hope uh, – can I just say I hope that's not the case <clears throat> because Congress is leaving town now. They're not going to be back for another three or four weeks. We, we are stuck with Donald Trump as our leader in a virus pandemic where we do not have a national public health plan, period. We don't have one, and we don't have any real leadership here. I hope Joe Biden steps in and does start to counter Trump. That's just my personal opinion. So I hope he's not silent. I hope he's up there every day, like Governor Cuomo is and like Governor Newsom is and some of these other governors are. That's just my own personal. Oh, we're talking about Vice President Cuomo? <laughs> <laughs> you mean FDR, FDR the, the ghost of FDR Cuomo, who that's how he beat Herbert Hoover. So. <laughs> <laughs> he's like the only effective politician right now in the country. People love his, his daily briefings. Yeah, I got to say. Yeah, it's amazing. So, Catherine, uh, just give paint us a picture of just how frozen the elections are right now. How consequential is this for thinking about not just climate change as an issue, but any other issue beyond coronavirus at this stage? What happens now with the canceled or delayed primaries and how does that feed into the general? Yeah, and we'll have to kind of see as we go how it's going to affect primary by primary state by state. Um, I think we have to immediately come up with, and some states are doing this, with alternatives to voting, whether it's mailing or other forms. But the main thing is we have to have an election. We can't not have an election. So we have to be able to have options. It's difficult because the Federal Election Commission is not functional right now because it's not, it doesn't have its full cadre of commissioners. So it's tough, but we have to do that. And we have to put strategies in place from a local level, of course, because it's the local entities that run the elections, and make sure that everybody can vote. And in the meantime, we also have to remember that, I mean, this is true on the health side where people are being rushed to the hospital with coronavirus, but people are being rushed to the hospital for a lot of other things too. 
And in the same way, just because coronavirus is at the top of the news as it, as it should be, it doesn't mean that climate impacts have changed. And so the people who are at the most vulnerable to climate impacts are still there. And they may also be more vulnerable to coronavirus impacts. Um, but just having one crisis in place does not forestall the other crisis. So at some point, we're going to have to think about climate. I think what we have to do is think of it this way. Our world has been turned completely upside down and everything has fallen out of the bottom. When we turn it over, what do we want it to look like? Do we want it to try to be the same as it was before and put all of the machinery of all the fossil fuel engines back into place? Or do we want to make it better so that everybody can benefit? So that's how I come to this, where I'm not saying I'm going to get distracted from trying to keep my family safe from coronavirus by thinking about clean energy, but thinking about it as a whole. And what do we actually want our world to look like? So up until this point, climate change was being talked about fairly extensively compared to other elections. And and now it's really not a focal point of this campaign. We'll see what happens in the general election as we branch out into other issues. And and I assume that a Democratic candidate, that, that Joe Biden, will have advisors who coach him on talking about climate change as it intersects with the public health crisis that we're facing now. So we'll see how that evolves. But let's talk about what happened up until this point. Jigger, what was your perception of the role that climate change played in shaping the the campaign, the primary campaign? I mean, I think that when you think about how uh, progress is made, I feel like people want it to be a linear sort of process where every month is building on the last month and things get to a crescendo. But in general, that's not how it works. There's a tremendous amount of preparation that occurs. And we went through that phase in glorious detail, right? When you think about all the plans that came out and all of the great work that Leah Stokes and other folks did at at characterizing that for folks on Twitter and, you know, forcing Joe Biden and others to actually, you know, not only uh, say that we're getting back into Paris, but actually lay, lay out all the detail around what they would do, right? And and accepting a Green New Deal and then putting forward what their version of a Green New Deal would be. We are more prepared on an institutional basis for what we do next than we've ever been in the past, right? I mean, before we had thousands of pages of Apollo Alliance work back in 2008 and other type of work. But today we have presidential campaigns that put together reports. So now my sense is that we're better prepared than ever. And I'm actually not negative at all about our positioning. In fact, I think that when you think about how we're going to kickstart the economy, giving large corporations money to get back to the status quo is not going to be sufficient for everybody. I think there will actually have to be a stimulus that's applied. And the only place where we're shovel ready is in green jobs, right? That's where the largest number of blue collar jobs since the 2008 financial crisis has been in the blue collar has been in the renewable energy climate solutions sector whether it's electric vehicles led lighting retrofits solar wind etc and so i think we're in a great position and i think we've actually done all the hard work and luck is preparation meets opportunity we've done all the preparation now we're waiting for the opportunity and i think stimulus 4 or you know covid 4 is going to be the legislation that we're going to act on That's an interesting point, Jigger. I heard two points there. One is that the political conversation has matured. And the other is that because of that maturity, we're finally at a place where we can make a real impact uh, as we inevitably act politically on this crisis. And everybody wants in, by the way, like 
Like Goldman, Bank of America, JP Morgan, everyone's ready with the largest funds they've ever had to put this money to work. We've raised over a trillion dollars of capital in the last 12 months, and it's all still sitting there ready to be deployed. Now, the question I have for uh, all of you, and let's start with you, Jeff, and then Catherine, is does that momentum actually translate into political action today? So after this third plan to address the crisis was just passed by the Senate, we heard during the negotiations Mitch McConnell get on the floor and rail against wind and solar tax credits, against this idea that we should hold uh, airlines accountable for their emissions uh, in order to give them money for a bailout. And it's pretty clear that in this political moment, we certainly have a lot of momentum from the business community and activists, but I don't know how much that translates to action right now. And I'm just curious uh, what you think about that. So I'm in the hopeful camp where Jigger is, and, and I want to walk through it very, very quickly. So a couple of things. First, go back in time when Joe Biden was vice president under Obama, and there was a big stimulus package. I was at the National Science Foundation. I was both their chief lobbyist and their chief public affairs officer. I went to the Hill, and I was able to, you know, in our office, we were able to secure $3 billion in that huge recovery stimulus plan that Joe Biden was in charge of. And we were able to, to put about a billion dollars of that in public financing into shovel-ready, you know, or basically research-ready projects for battery and storage. And a lot of that's now 10 years later. A lot of it's actually available. You know, it's crossed the valley of death, as Jigger knows well. Um, so, And so Joe Biden can talk about this. So politically, this is right in his wheelhouse. <clears throat> I mean, so if he wants to talk about it, it is right in his wheelhouse. And the second thing is, as Jigger has talked about, <clears throat> there's there's a ton of private capital that's waiting to come in off the sidelines if, there's, if they can see a public signal. So I'm going to pick on Chase uh, and Jamie Dimon. They have talked about they've got a ton of cash ready to go to put into um, clean energy stuff. Put it into the clean energy stuff and stop, you know, funding oil and gas development, which, you know, I, I don't know how far the Brent crude price is going to drop and where you're going to see oil prices and oil and gas development. But a better investment would be to, for private capital to put it into that. I think I think that that then turns into political will. So I'm hopeful. I, I'm, I'm with Jigger on this. I share a lot of that optimism because of how far the business community has moved on this. But I don't think that those Wall Street banks that are backing clean energy projects or large corporations that are implementing sustainability goals are going into Congress and saying, hey, guys, this is the future. They're, they just want their money now. And they're not saying, oh, you should tie it to you know low carbon issues. Like there's I don't get the sense that there's a lot of lobbying going on from these companies that are at the forefront when it comes to members of Congress. And I, I worry about a disconnect there. Catherine? I actually think there is a lot of lobbying going on. I think there people have been tiptoeing a little bit around the health crisis and the need for immediate relief for hospitals and communities at risk from the health crisis. So there's been a bit of a like, don't seem too unseemly about asking for funding for X, Y, and Z if it's not immediately related. So you have to tie it together. I think Jeff made a really good point about the stimulus. Um, the stimulus was great at getting money out the door. And I was working in smart grid at the time. So we saw a big influx of funding in that sector too. And what we found was that 
because of the stimulus, a lot of the pricing of all of these technologies has gone down. So that's great because we can get a lot more for a lot less now. And it really jump-started the industry. But we need a lot more than what was done then. And I think we need to frame it differently. So we have to frame it as, look, a lot of people are losing their jobs. We've had more requests for relief from unemployment than ever before. So what's going to happen? What do we need to do? We need to get America back to work again. And what are the jobs that people need to go to? And then let's have those jobs being in clean energy and climate and set up structures for people to get back to work in that way. And so some of those could be broadband, because as we find out now, we can see where we don't have internet for people who need information and need to do distance learning for their schools. We need to get that to everyone. We need you know weatherization. We need the 1603 grants, like a refundable program for not just solar and wind, but maybe also resilient technologies like microgrids or advanced grid technologies that allow for more visibility and resilience on the grid. Because guess what? While this coronavirus is still raging, we're going to still have wildfires and we're still going to have flood seasons. So those are not going to go away. So technologies like that are going to be really important. Um, Manufacturing policy, we're seeing right now where our supply chain is breaking down. And we need we don't have manufacturing policy in this country. We need better manufacturing policy. That's a great way to get people back to work. And then tools like uh, Debbie Dingell and uh, Ed Markey and Chris Van Hollen have a National Climate Bank, a nonprofit that would be able to get money out the door quickly, leverage that with private sector capital, and be able to finance projects in areas that would normally not pencil out, but can pencil out with a little bit of public funding. So I think there are a whole bunch of things that we can do that will address the issue in a way that that does not ignore the fact that we're also in the middle of a medical crisis. I also think, Stephen, I think you're you're just... um not taking the second or third step from some of these programs that came out of the bailout bill that was just, you know, put forward this week. So for instance, if you have $500 billion that the Fed can basically 10x, $425 billion of that, so you've got $4.25 trillion worth of capital. Um, for like NextEra Energy, for instance, or Hannon Armstrong, or some of these other publicly traded yield co's, they actually have the right to get access to that money. All they have to do is to agree not to pay a dividend for one year, and then they get access to basically free money that guess what they're going to do? Put into clean energy. And so in general, like it's not called a clean energy stimulus. I got it. But we're so large and so profitable and so big now that we get access to all that money. Sun Power gets access to that money. First Solar gets access to that money. All the people that we have that are billion-dollar companies get access to that money. All the small businesses, remember what's in this bailout bill is that businesses less than 500 uh, people, they get to get loans to pay their employees. And if they don't lay them off for four months, guess what? That loan gets forgiven. Guess how many companies we have in the LED lighting space, the you know solar space, et cetera, that's going to take advantage of that? A ton, right? And so because of that, we're going to be very strong coming out of this bailout process four months from now with people still employed and ready to sell like crazy. So we have very quickly steered into this conversation around a low carbon or green stimulus. And it makes sense because that's what everyone's thinking about right now. Um, That is what is going to be consuming us. Let's bring this back into election politics for this segment. How should Joe Biden in the general election message around this? If ultimately the next president 
uh, or the current president, that in the next presidency, if we are going to be dealing with an even greater infrastructure package to stimulate the economy, how does Joe Biden get up there and make his case to the American people that this is the stuff that needs to be in there? And do you think he can do it? I mean, I think you all kind of just made that case, right? So I presume that there's a little bit of this and a little bit of that and what you just said. But the question I have is, can he do that? <laughs> that's really what's, what's, what's fundamental to me. I mean, he's got to get up there and make his case that this is the stuff that we need. And I have not actually seen many of the Democrats in this race make that clear connection between the business community and the political need. And this is the moment to do that. Um, so, uh, Catherine, let's turn it to you first. Like, do you think Biden can do it? Absolutely. I think he is particularly well suited for this because I think you need to do a couple things. One thing is you have to show basic humanity. You have to show warmth and caring for your fellow citizens. And Biden is really good at doing that. I think the second thing you need to do is you need to be a technocrat. You need to understand how the government works and what are all the levers that you can press to be efficient, whether it is to handle a coronavirus or whether it is to combat climate change and stimulate the economy. So I think he can show that too. And then the third thing he can do is show that he has experience in doing so and that he can pick people, um, whether in the people who he worked with in the past or people who are out there there now doing really good work who can make this all happen. The one thing I'd push back on, and I'd love your guys' you know, counsel on this, is that it feels to me like all of the stimulus is going to get done this year. So I don't think anything is going to happen under the new president, right? So I think the new president, if particularly if it's a Democrat, is just going to get blamed and the Tea Party movement is going to be 10 times larger than it was last time, right? So I don't think anything is going to get passed next year. So this is about shaping the policy and the legislation that gets passed this year. And so my sense is that Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi are going to have a much bigger role to play. And frankly, I think Joe Biden just needs to lay low, first of all, so he doesn't die of coronavirus. And second of all, because I think that like there's a lot of people that are going to die over the next 12 weeks. I think the news cycle is going to get really bad for Trump, particularly in Mississippi, where the governor has actually just said, forget social distancing, everyone get back to work. So and those are the states, by the way, that already have the highest mortality rates. So when you think about where people die in general from general disease, it's mainly in the South. And so these are the places where you already have 900 deaths per 100,000 versus 700 deaths per 100,000 in California or New York or other places. So I I think in general, Joe Biden is going to give great speeches at the Democratic National Convention, and I think he's going to do all that stuff. But right now, my sense is this is actually just internal warfare between Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, you know, and like, you know, and Mitch McConnell. Well, that goes back to my first point when we kicked off the show, which is, you know, Biden's probably going to lay low for a little bit and let this situation play out and then come in and message accordingly, which which makes, you know, uh, the climate conversation a little bit touchy because we're going through a very acute crisis right now. And for those of us in the climate and clean energy community, like it makes sense to have this conversation, but you, we need to be careful about how this pushes out into the mainstream conversation as a lot of people are suffering. With that said, eventually Biden's going to have to show up. He's going to have to have a clear message. Jeff, what do you think that message is for Biden? And do you think he can deliver it? So I want to take a little bit of a counter narrative to what you all have been talking about. I, sure. First of all, I think Biden can show up and should show up. And I think he should not sit in the background. And here's why. 
Right now, I mean, and we're talking today, the jobless numbers just came out. 3.3 million filed for unemployment. Massive number. That happened today. Everybody has been focused on jobs and the economy and just sort of preparing for the onslaught of, the, of, of deaths in hospitals. My, my daughter's a physician. My wife is volunteering double shifts at the hospital. My son is running an organization that's on the front lines of the coronavirus in Nepal and countries around the world. The worst aspects of the health crisis are still yet to come. When they do, we need Joe Biden to be there as the, as the empathy um, person in chief because we don't have that in our president right now. So I think Joe Biden needs to be out there, should be out there, and I'll say he will be out there. Then the second point around Joe Biden is this. We talked a little bit, a little bit about this earlier. He has been through this before. He loves trains. He loves infrastructure. He loves talking about building stuff. He was That's what he did as a senator. That's what he did when he was uh, Barack Obama's uh, vice president. He should talk about how to rebuild America, you know, uh, coming out of this. That's his job. And if he doesn't do it, guess who is going to do it? Donald Trump's going to do it. So uh, that's my counter narrative. I don't think Joe Biden should sit on the sidelines and wait. I think he needs to mix it up right now. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And that's what I was trying to say before. And and I actually think that even if we spend all the money in the world this year, which is very possible, um, Biden would still, as president, have a lot of ability to get things done from an administrative position. We're seeing that right now from Donald Trump. There are a lot of levers to push in the federal sector, um, even if you don't pass major pieces of legislation. So I still think there's a lot that he could get done. I think Biden will clearly do well in the infrastructure piece. He knows how to talk about it. He knows how to tell that story. Where I think his campaign needs to start thinking more clearly is on how to connect the coronavirus disaster with climate change. And there is some debate over whether talking about climate change is exploitative, given that we're going through a a crisis, but it is not. And if you frame it through this government preparedness lens, uh, you know, they're, they're very similar crises, right? International officials have been warning us about a potential major pandemic for some time and countries have not been able to get their act together. Same is true for climate change. And when you have an administration that starts to dismantle dismantle government piece by piece, you find yourself vulnerable when crisis hits. And there is a very clear link that you can link to Donald Trump's actions um, and just general government unpreparedness that I think could be quite effective. And I haven't heard Biden make that case yet. He he didn't really make it in the recent debate. Neither did Sanders. And it feels to me like they should be really focusing in on, on that message as we get into the general election. I think you're asking too much of Biden. I mean, at the end of the day, like when you the person who people are watching the most right now on the political side is Rachel Bitkoffer, who's over at uh, our friends at the Niskan Center. And, you know, her big take from 2018 and now is people are voting against Trump more than they're voting for the candidate on the Democratic side. And so I think all of his advisors have sort of said the same thing. It's like, do what you can do the minimum, like, you know, like just get through the election because people are voting against Trump, right? And when you think about climate, Remember that what's different today than what was what was in place in 2008 is one, as Catherine said, the technologies are much cheaper. But two, we have real legislation passed that covers over 60% of the US population. So it doesn't matter what gets passed out of the federal government. It really doesn't. All of it's going to go into climate. 
the end of the day, like if it goes into the states on a pro rata basis, those governors have laws that represent what they can spend that money on. And those laws say electric buses. Those laws say weatherization. Those laws say decarbonization. And so that's happening as we speak. Separately, the one industry that's that's affected but not that affected financially is the electric utility sector. And they're going to be asked to, you know, put some capital to work, and they want to put capital to work. And they're heavily regulated to do it in a decarbonized fashion, right? So I I think that we are so used to having specific policies that mention solar and wind and mention decarbonization. And if they don't mention it, then it's, you know, somehow a failure. We don't need that today. All I need is general transportation dollars to go to the DOT. And then we'll deal with it at the state level, right? Like I don't need them to specify electric vehicles at the federal level because I've already got it handled at the local level. That's a super interesting point and probably brings a little bit more optimism to the table when we think about whatever infrastructure investments happen. Um, I still think that that you know there's this bigger question about broader framing to tap deeper into the collective psychology of Americans, and I'm not sure that we've seen the most effective messaging yet. So the last question I have on this segment is about the environmental left and how they're going to view Joe Biden as the nominee. Now, If you had asked me three weeks ago this question, I would have said, yeah, there may be some people who will vote for someone else or stick out of the election because they think that Biden is going to be milquetoast on energy and climate. Now we're in this crisis. I think people are very scared about uh, Donald Trump as the leader of this country. And you're probably just going to see people flock to Biden uh, for the stability reason. So maybe climate doesn't play in... um, into their thinking in the same way. But let's just still break down how the climate movement and the environmental left is viewing the Biden candidacy. Um, Jeff, they've been somewhat critical thus far. My sense is that they'll rally around him. Does he have any weaknesses with the environmental left at this stage? Well, I think they're starting to get comfortable with him. They will rally around him. Uh, I, that's because there's no choice. Let's be let's be honest about it. Um, if he's the nominee on the Democratic side, they will rally around him. Um, I and like Jigger, I'm a I'm a big Rachel Bitcoifer fan. I I mean Jerry Taylor's uh, was lucky to pull her into the Niskan Center. Her negative partisanship model um, is really interesting. I think this you know this next election at the presidential level will be a referendum on Trump, um, if people will be voting against him or, or with him, um, and Joe Biden will benefit from that. Um, the question becomes, uh, how, how vocal does the environmental movement and, and the environmental left and the climate left want to be in pushing Biden? And I think they're going to be very vocal. And I'll give you one example. We, my, we work really close with a lot of the youth climate leaders, that include, in, including from those with the Sunshine Movement and 350 and, and uh, Zero Hour and Future Coalition. They really want to start pushing Joe Biden, starting around a big digital media um, activism effort around Earth Day in a few weeks. They they just want to push. They love Bernie Sanders, but if Bernie Sanders is not the nominee, they will turn their fire and direction at Joe Biden to try to push him. So I think I think that's going to be their game plan for the rest of this year is, is just to keep pushing. Um, Joe Biden, but also, quite frankly, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi. Um, I thought it was interesting that Nancy Pelosi did try to publicly make the argument that if we're going to bail out the airline industry, let's force them to reduce emissions. It's it's you know on the margins, it doesn't really it may not matter all that much, but it, it's it's a principle. It's you know injecting that into the policy debate. So I think that's what you see the environmental left doing is moving 
um, more institutional, centrist, or however you want to call them, politicians, to be more active on the climate and clean energy issues. Yeah, I reached out to Tamara Tolzo Laughlin at 350.org, and I totally agree with Jeff. They will be pushing, but they also have all of these great tools that they can use. So they already operate in a lot of ways online. Um, they they support a lot more movement through digital organizing, and I think that will really be to Joe Biden's advantage um, once all of the focus shifts to him because they have a really strong infrastructure. They're very good at messaging. They're very good at bringing people together, and also they can they can put some pressure on him to make sure he does the right thing. Yeah, I I mean I think the data shows pretty clearly that a lot of climate oriented voters voted for Joe Biden as opposed to Bernie Sanders, etc. It actually shows a lot of weakness, frankly, out of the Sunrise Movement. So I think a lot of the environmental left needs to lose the term environmental left. I think they need to focus a little more on the environment and less less on the left and less on, you know, voting for Democrats and figuring out exactly how to resonate with the American public, right? Figuring out, like, when you look about this coronavirus, one of the things that occurred is we realize that actually we are still living in very polluted environments. And in fact, you know, like healthcare outcomes have never been better in this country outside of coronavirus because, you know, people are not driving. And so you see a lot less asthma related incidents. You see a lot less heart conditions right now because of the better pollution, right? All the things the environmentalists have been saying for years, I think they are now proving their case. And I think showing empathy and figuring out how to reconnect with all voters, particularly those who are benefiting from the lower, you know, sort of pollution right now is what they should be focused on, right? I think they need to figure out how to broaden their tent. For the last eight to 12 years, they've been narrowing their tent substantially to try to figure out how to get more and more and more of the the craziest progressives, right, in office, etc. And now they've done their job, fine, they moved the Overton window, they've got to really start figuring out how on this 50th anniversary of Earth Day, which is this year, how to speak to the entire population. I've been hammering this point for a while now. This is the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. If you go back in time and look, the beginning of the environmental movement and around Earth Day was around protecting us, protecting human beings, protecting communities, you know, dealing with pollution and rivers and lakes and the air. And over time, we sort of lost that. We now can recapture that as part of the broader environmental movement, and we need to do that. And this 50th anniversary year is the time to do that. And in the middle of a health crisis, it's the perfect time to do that. Air pollution is exacerbating or, you know, the problem with coronavirus um, symptoms. It, uh, so you, it's, there's a direct time between air pollution and clean air and our lungs and the coronavirus. If you can make that case in a compelling way, you can actually link these two in, a, in the public square. Coming up, more on climate messaging in a time of crisis and real economic upheaval. First, when it comes to making decisions about your organization's energy use in these uncertain times, well, you don't have a crystal ball. So where do you turn? You can turn to Sea Power. They're going to help you figure out, is it the right time to invest in distributed generation? How do you go about 
figuring out energy markets and energy pricing and how to earn revenue in the region's energy market? Is your organization maximizing demand response earnings and saving you money? CPower is there to help. CPower has been helping organizations chart a path to energy's future since the first competitive energy markets were established in the U.S. And their energy experts are going to work with you to build a unique bridge to that future. And that is changing rapidly, and CPower's experts are on top of it. Visit thecpowerway.com slash future to learn more about how CPower can guide you across the bridge to energy's future. Okay, so that last point brings us into this broader discussion that I want to have at the tail end of the show, which is all about how to message on these issues. We've talked about a number of ways that we think that we can put together effective climate messaging in this new environment. But I think a lot of people are struggling with the appropriate ways to talk about this issue, just given that we're facing this impending economic and public health doom. So let's think through some of these ways a little bit more. We heard about the economic stimulus and infrastructure. We heard a little bit about extreme weather and coronavirus. We heard about you know dismantling the government and government preparedness. Which one of these is going to resonate more? Let's actually talk first about the extreme weather piece, because what we heard is a bunch of state officials recently warning that floods and hurricanes, you know, we're, we're entering flooding season, we're entering hurricane season. If we're dealing with this virus, you are going to see a lot of localities and states dealing with an extreme amount of pressure when hospitals and government agencies are overtaxed. And this could be an, a secondary crisis that not a lot of people are thinking through at this time. Jeff, what are these mayors and local officials saying right now? And what could this second wave of disaster be? Hospitals are more than overtaxed right now. They're overwhelmed. And a lot of them are about to be overrun. So imagine, and, and, and I, and, and I want to use a specific example of, of where the, these, these things are starting to bump into each other. Up and down the Mississippi River, you're starting to see extreme weather um, cause more flooding. There are mayors, we're talking to mayors, both Republican and Democratic mayors up and down the Mississippi River, who are worried that they may, might have to evacuate their entire town because of flooding that's tied to climate change, why everybody's supposed to be sheltering in place at their homes. That is a big problem. And then if you have health problems on top of the coronavirus problems in overwhelmed hospitals, you have a, a breakdown of of systems inside of those communities. That's where there's this intersection. So imagine wildfires out in the West that look a lot like Campfire the Malibu fires. The same thing happens. Or imagine hurricane um, in the fall when we get the second wave of the coronavirus hit and those hurt the hurricane season displaces people at a time when they need to be staying in their homes. These things are going to intersect. They're already starting to intersect. And politicians need to find a way to talk about this. And so how do we talk about it? The big question is, how do we message in a way that doesn't make people feel like they're being pawns or that we're exploiting their tragedy to talk about an issue? And of course, we all know that these issues are explicitly tied, but it can feel, um, you know, it can feel bad when you're sort of bringing in this issue that people see as political. Um, so how do you talk about it in a way that makes sense for people that they understand and doesn't turn them off? So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to make it as simple as I possibly can. Make it personal and make it immediate. That's how you talk about the climate issue. It's, like, it's how you talk about any issue, for crying out loud. We're human beings. Make it personal to us, to our families, and to our communities, and make it immediate. Climate change is not a distant threat. 
And I wish the scientists had stopped talking about that as a future threat a long time ago, but it is what it is. It is here now. The wolf is at our door right now with the climate issue. Um, so that's how you do it. Make it personal and make it immediate. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, we can hold up examples. I'm not a communication specialist, but I could see ads where you know, right now the skies are clean. I don't, I live five minutes from an airport and I don't hear any planes, which is very weird. Um, so there's there's less air pollution right now. So you could frame it in a personal way where my kid has 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 fewer asthma attacks because the air is clean right now. But soon we're all going to get back to work, and then what's going to happen? Don't we want what our work is to be better for us? And don't we want the skies to continue to be clean while we're getting back to work? So I think you could position it as partly personal and partly more for a broader economic narrative. Um, On the wildfire issue, I know Senator uh, Harris from California has been talking about this too and saying, you know, how do we deal with the fact that we we continue to have wildfires? That's not going to change. and yet we also have all this illness. And so some really practical suggestions of, all right, we have all these hotels that are having a really hard time. Why don't we turn those into facilities to accommodate uh, sick patients or doctors? And I know they're doing this in New York, too, where they're accommodating medical professionals in hotels. And make sure that those buildings have microgrids and, and energy security because they're going to need that when the wildfires come. So I think there are ways we can kind of package it together from a messaging standpoint, but also just from a practical and policy standpoint. Yeah, so I mean, I certainly agree with both Catherine and Jeff. I, I would say it slightly more strongly, which is that I think this whole thing is about poverty. I don't think, I mean, it, you can say it's about healthcare, you can say about a lot of things, but honestly, every time a crisis occurs, we screw over poor people. That's how this works, right? And I think that we should be saying that over and over and over again, right? I mean, whether it's access to medical facilities, if doctors are triaging patients, right? Are they triaging young versus old? Are they triaging poor versus insured, right? Like, I mean, how are they triaging people, right? They're definitely going to run out of ventilators, right? We're giving people a $1,200 check, and then we're giving them slightly more unemployment, which is great for a certain period of time. I heard somebody who said $100,000 doesn't go as far as it used to. The cap on the stimulus should have been more than $100,000. 90% of Americans make less than $100,000 a year, right? And so I think that like we we continue to be tone deaf in this country. And so my suggestion would be just to talk about the inequality of the stimulus bill and the stimulus response and the, you know, bailout bill, et cetera, and like really talk about all the issues that have been piling up for for years, right? And around rent affordability, around, you know, the ability for people to get good quality work, around the gig economy, around the fact that people still can't get insurance. Like there's all these issues that I think really matter. And I don't think climate is the issue that that matters right now, right? I think that ultimately, when you think about it, climate is wrapped into it. But I think the most resonant issues right now is just about poverty. Yeah, but Jigger, how do we then deal with the fact that all of our policymakers do not represent, are are not living in poverty? Our policymakers are not those people. So how do we get them to make good policies while understanding that this helps their constituents, certainly, but 
they may not feel these impacts. I thought Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren did a great job. I think that Joe Biden resonated more around his electability. And I think that's why he ended up winning a lot of these races. And they were very smart to have all these people selectively, you know, drop out at the right time and, you know, and and endorse him. So I thought they did a masterful job of that. But at the end of the day, I think their messaging still resonates, which is like, look, you know, you're, you and your family are more at risk, because the social safety nets in this country are not there. Right. And even this um, sick leave policy that was passed in the first stimulus is only through December 31st. And so what happens at the end of December 31st if you still get coronavirus? We're not going to have a vaccine by December 31st. No one believes we're going to have a vaccine by December 31st. And so that's going to extend into next year. And then what are you going to do then, right? And I think getting the political support to make sure that that stuff gets extended, that that stuff becomes permanent, is part of the broader narrative. And then once you've got people acknowledging that policymakers forget poor people on a regular basis because they're not poor themselves, then like you start to say, hey, during disasters, what about poor people? During this, what about poor people? Like, And then I think you can continue the narrative. But right now, I think this is about how this country systematically denies access to basic services to the people who are poor. I don't disagree with that. I think clearly that framing will overshadow climate in the general election. Um, If there's one thing that this crisis has showed us, it is that at times of sacrifice like this, we are asking so much of people when uh, we are not providing that safety net that allows them to take the actions that we need from them. And so we are at this moment, we were asking for extraordinary sacrifice and we do not have the basic safety net that allows people to make that sacrifice. And it is clearly laying bare how how badly we have treated vulnerable people in this country. So I don't disagree that that will be a central framing to the election. But let's wrap this up and just narrow in on the climate piece. So given all that, what do you all think is the most effective framing? If you had to choose one going in and you said to Joe Biden, this is the thing you got to hammer. Just keep hammering this because this is the most winning thing against Trump. What is it going to be? Um, Jeff, let's start with you. What do you think the of these like, different framings that we've identified in this episode, what is the most central one that you would focus on? The truth is I would focus on the fact that Donald Trump has been the environmental polluter in chief since he was president. Climate is a wedge issue if you frame it as Trump is harming, our, uh, harming us, harming our communities, harming people. I mean, he has allowed polluters and industry to just run rampant inside of Washington, D.C. for the last three years. Um, And when you frame it in that way, that uh, everything he's doing is harming us, um, then it becomes a wedge issue for a Democrat. So he has to he has to flip that on Trump and and put Trump on the defensive, which is hard to do, quite honestly, because, you know, Trump doesn't do well on the defensive. You can't pin him down because he just starts lying um, about his own record. Um, so, but that's what I, you know, you hammer him on the fact that he is, you know, an environmental polluter in chief. Catherine, what do you think? I would say, look, the coronavirus has shown that we are all one community. All of us have had to work together to try to save each other and our communities from this horrible disease in the same way we need to do deal with climate change. Climate change affects every single one of us. And together we can do that. And I will help you do that. I'm on your side. 
Yeah, I think that talking about climate change is as bad advice now as it was in 2008 when Max and Markey was trying to be unleashed around the worst financial crisis since the Great Recession, Great Depression. I, I think that you avoid the sort of negative impacts of climate change and how we have to do this for moral reasons, and you move to the economic development messaging, right? And so you say, look, if if this country needs to put people back to work, right, the way you put people back to work is through um, clean infrastructure, right, that we have more shovel-ready projects than anyone else does. We provide more careers than anyone else does. We don't have gig workers. We actually have people that benefit from training and benefit from being in in a job for many years, right? And so we've got $35 billion with a wind farms ready to be constructed. They need policy to be unlocked. We have $35 billion with the solar projects ready to be constructed. They need policy to be unlocked, right? We actually have the greatest wealth creation opportunity of our lifetime on our doorstep, and it requires government policy and government coordination to unlock it, right? And I think that people want good blue collar careers, right? That's what they're, they've been yearning for since the 70s. And I think they want it now more than ever. The framing that resonates the most with me is what you just outlined, Jigger, because I tend to think of these issues in this like economic and business lens. But I think we all see this slightly differently, which I love because I have a different take on what I think is most effective right now. And that is the government preparedness piece. I am convinced that when you start showing just how inept this administration is and you compare that with what public health officials have said and show the number of cases rising and show what President Trump has said and show how much he has screwed up government, that resonates with people because it is now impacting their lives. This isn't just some agency with, you know, tens of thousands of workers that do things that people don't understand. Like this is the front lines and this is causing people to go to the hospital hospital or die. Um, I saw this morning that Priorities USA, this PAC, had taken out an ad showing uh, Trump's words. They they have him in black and white talking about um, how the, the coronavirus isn't a big threat. And then layered on top of that, they've got this graph where the cases keep rising and it juxtaposed with the dates that he said it wasn't a big deal. It's so powerful. And in fact, the Trump campaign just issued a cease and desist letter demanding that TV stations pull the ad. They are scared. They know that how badly they screwed up and we have to hammer them because this has real consequences. So I think you can tap into that on the climate change side and you can do something similar for, you know, there's so much good messaging about what climate experts have been saying, and you can visually show how much this administration is dismissing it with the current impacts. And this is a moment where we can learn from what resonates. And I hate to use the word winning issue because that sounds like it's just a terrible word to use at this moment when we are in such crisis. But I do think it can resonate with people. So I'm convinced that that's what we really need to hammer right now. Yeah, that ad all day long, every single day until the election. Like, I don't even know why they would they would do anything else. Just update the graph every day and re- republish it. It's just the craziest ad. It's 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 it, and then just change the speakers too. like, I mean, the governor of Mississippi, put him on there too. <laughs> put all the rest of them on there. Like, it's just it's shocking to me. The callousness right now where people are basically saying, I'd rather 2 million people die than save the economy or then hurt the economy. And it's just that is never the choice. Like, it's just never the choice. Like, if you had 2 million people die, that is going to wreck the economy. What do you think the Dow is going to do if 2 million people die? It's just 
the craziest thing the way that people are framing this? I have to say, I'm I'm equally as appalled. I mean, I mean, to, I I don't see how people, and, and maybe it's because it's so personal for me. And I was, you know, my my wife goes to the hospital, you know, to work. My daughter is a physician. I think every single person on the front lines of this, when this health crisis really hits and people do start dying in much larger numbers, I think it will become so apparent how inept this president and this administration has been. Jigger's exactly correct. Those ads literally write themselves, and this becomes a referendum um, on Trump at, at, you know, that for every single day for the rest of the year. So let's finish up with our free electrons. Who knows how long this Zoom call is going to last before the meeting ends on us prematurely. Let's just talk about things that are happening in our daily lives or things that we're reading that we want listeners to take from. Uh, Catherine, what is your free electron this week? So I want to bring a little joy to all of our listeners. And there's a lot of really cool stuff out there. The you know COVID life uh, response from zoo cams to cherry blossom bloom cams to free concerts on Instagram and um, this great YouTube Rotterdam Symphony Orchestra of Ode to Joy with all the different instruments playing. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, but for me personally, two amazing things happened this week. One was that my daughter turned 30. So just to let y'all know, I was like five when I had her. Um, And she lives in a townhouse with a young woman who has some coronavirus symptoms. And so we're not able to see our daughter. So uh, we went over to her house, took her gifts and stood outside and saying happy birthday to her. And um, I left. And of course, our presents couldn't be things that we shopped for. It were just things that I found at home that I thought she would like, one of which was the first uh, painting I ever did, watercolor. And it was of her. And she was a little bitty girl when I painted it. So I gave that to her and, you know, left it for her to then wipe off and take inside. Uh, So that was one like very nice, happy moment. But the other big moment in our life this week was that my son's girlfriend who is a lawyer, but also a yoga teacher, has decided to do free yoga classes on Zoom. And so I went on to her first Zoom yoga class on Tuesday, and she had invited all of her family and friends, and everybody was on. We're all doing yoga. I had turned my camera off because I really didn't want anybody to see me. And at the end of the episode, my son walked in and knelt down and asked her to marry him. Wow. So uh, we all got to see the most amazing coronavirus life moment. uh, And he kind of said, you know, what better time to do it? Oh, that's so amazing. Yay, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. See, Zoom really does bring us together. (laughs) Oh, Stephen, no, you're going to be a pitch man for Zoom now. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone buys Zoom stock. (laughs) What a delightful story, Catherine. I love that. Uh, Jigger, what's your free electron? So um, Sage Boggs is a uh, writer for Jimmy Fallon and has a great thread that he posted on Twitter around the origin of the word, uh, the naming of Triscuits. And whoa, 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 whoa. He had a bunch hey, of fights. this was mine. No. Oh, man. This is the oh, most awesome story. We are oh, stories this. during this time. Oh, All right, I'll give it to you <laughs> if you want. You, I've got you, another one. You, you say one word, I'll say another word, and we'll try to tell the story. <laughs> so you start. You say one word, I'll say another. Trisket does not mean three. <laughs> it means? Electricity. Tell them why. It was, it was invented out of the hydropower dams of Niagara Falls around the turn of the century in 1900. And they were 
were promoting the fact that they were this was the first biscuit that was made from lightning or electricity at the time. So I haven't been able to verify if this is true, but I went out this morning and looked at a bunch of old Triscuit ads. And indeed, uh, when Triscuits were first introduced, it was all about how they were the world's first electric baked biscuits. So what a what a wonderful story. Turns out Nabisco said that they, they don't have access to the original story. Like they don't know the origins, but this is what people are speculating, that it was electricity. Yeah, their historian librarian should be fired. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Come on. Oh my God. Yeah, I cannot well, believe that look- what I've learned from the show is that Triscuit is the electric baked biscuit. <laughs> Well, the one other thing you might want to learn from the show is I'll add a free electron, which is this month, offshore wind in the UK just exceeded onshore wind. So they might actually have some new food product that gets created with offshore wind this month that we'll, we'll be talking about in 50 years. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I don't know what your favorite snacks are, but Triscuits are at the top of my uh, social isolation snack list. 100%. Sage. Yeah. It's the it's it's the like it's the herbs that they put in there. The herbs there you are go. amazing. And then, and then if you melt cheese on on top, then mm. you got a me- then you got a meal. So yeah. there you mm-hmm. go. Mm. Triscuit nachos <laughs> are the best. I, I usually eat pretty healthy, but right now we uh, we have a lot of different food in the house that we stockpiled. I am chowing on pop tarts and frosted flakes, <laughs> like I was you know eight years old again. <laughs> yeah. Last night when I was preparing for this show, I had like four bowls of frosted flakes. Um, oh so, great! Um, anyway, Jeff, what is your uh, free electron kids and kids and zoom is uh just and and how kids young kids especially are dealing with being cooped up inside all day long and what happens when they get outside so uh, i i watched as some friends decided to just start reading books on zoom and then all the kids piled into the videos and every and uh, my grandkids were having fun everybody's you know they were all having fun and talking to the microphone and it was just a completely different experience for storytelling that was just a lot of fun i've also been stealing all of my any 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 anytime anybody's got a new way to do hide and seek with kids and they capture on the video um, I'm stealing all of their ideas to do hide and seek so my favorite is when um, somebody uh, a, a dad hid put a hat on top of pillows under a blanket and pretended that that was him and then scared the living daylights out of the kids when they went and found the the the, the hat <laughs> on the couch um, but my but I also wanted the flip side of the dark side of this is that when kids get outside um, and I uh, we have a friend who was in Golden Gate Park was walking along their two and four year olds were finally outside after being cooped up outside and they were running f- happily in along the path in Golden Gate Park it's a it's 10 feet wide and a very serious runner came along and just freaked out that she couldn't get around the two little kids, the two-year-old and the four-year-old in the path, stopped and started haranguing the mother and then whipped out her phone and says, I'm reporting you. I'm reporting you. So, you know, keep your six feet. How do you tell a two-year-old to keep six feet, you know, away from you? You don't. You just run around them as fast as you possibly can. Uh, anyway, that's my free electron. Oh, my Lord. I hope she doesn't trip and fall from karma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Let's show some humanity, people. Mm. Well, that's Jeff Nesbitt. He is the co-host of Climate 2020, and he's the executive director of Climate Nexus. Jeff, thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun, so thank you all. 
Catherine Hamilton is our Energy Gang co-host, and she is the founder and co-chair of 38 North Solutions. Catherine, thanks. Thank you. This has been so much fun. And Jigger Shaw is our other Energy Gang co-host. He is the president of Generate Capital. Jigger, good fun. Social distancing. (laughs) And that is the show. For the listeners of the Energy Gang, you can find Climate 2020 on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your podcast. Go subscribe now and get tapped into politics. For Climate 2020 listeners, you can find the Energy Gang in all the same places. We're having conversations like this about trends in energy and environmental issues every week, often with a business and markets angle. So both these shows complement each other well. Ingrid Lobet is our senior producer and editor for this episode. Sean Marquand also helped produce and edit. You can find both podcasts on the usual social media channels, including Twitter. You'll also find me, Jeff Nesbitt, Catherine Hamilton, and Jigger Shaw. Thank you for listening. Please take care of yourself, take care of each other, and we'll catch up with you on both Climate 2020 and the Energy Gang every week.